Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 will be our text. As I've kind of highlighted each time that we've spent in the book of Hebrews, there's this kind of radical transformation that's taken place in the religious realm in the life of the believer in light of the new covenant. And the author of Hebrews is concerned with stressing, you know, the greatness of the old covenant, but he puts it in the light of the superiority of the new covenant. And the natural byproduct of that superiority is that Jesus transcends, he exceeds and fulfills all the major types, shadows, and roles in the old covenant. One of the things I love about studying the book of Hebrews is that it, like no other, presents all the estates of Christ in great detail, from his humiliation to exaltation, along with all the significant works of all the offices that he holds in great detail, like no other book has ever done. With the coming of Jesus, there is a transformation so all-consuming that returning to the old covenant is not only unhelpful, inaccurate, but damning. Now let me clarify one thing for you in your thinking before I get too far into this. This change in covenants from the old covenant to the new covenant is not a change in God. Like he was frustrated and, and needed to fall back on plan B. No, the church of Jesus Christ is not plan B. It was always in the plan of God from before the garden and eternity passed And so moving through redemptive history from promise to fulfillment, to have this kind of progression in revelation, to have a a difference between shadow and substance in the old and new covenants. And when fulfillment arrives, everything that foreshadows it is obsolete when it's compared to the, the magnitude of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. It's called the consummation of the ages. Hebrews 9.26. One symbol of this was the veil. The veil that separated the people from God, the Holy of Holies. Our great high priest had come, and so the separation was over. It's not that the symbol of the temple and tabernacle were unimportant, but their purposes had been achieved in the perfect work of Jesus. And the author of Hebrews shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the threefold offices of Israel, of prophet, of king, and now of priest. And in our study of the book of Hebrews, the author is about to transition from Christ's superiority to Moses, which he spent nearly two chapters establishing before our text, into Jesus' superiority over the priestly office. Jesus is superior to the Levitical priesthood. He is the priest whom they all pointed to. At the coming of the true priest, the occupation of the Levites becomes obsolete. Some secular historians have said that the threefold offices of Jesus were just put in place to assist the governance of the nation of Israel. Kind of like a pragmatic thing, not divinely intended. But they only say that because they don't know God. Those offices were put in place, not just as some function of theocracy, but to foreshadow the fulfillment rendered by the true prophet, priest, king of God's people, Jesus Christ. These are the roles that the son assumed on behalf of his people. So if you spent any time in the Old Testament, especially as we did our series in the Old Testament last semester, and in the book of Leviticus, you know that the priest's role was twofold, to make intercession and to make atonement intercession and atonement. 
In theology, we like to highlight that making atonement and intercession are coextensive. And by that, we mean that those for whom the priest makes intercession are those for whom he makes atonement. The priests of Levi never made intercession or atonement for the entire world. They only interceded and offered sacrifices for the people of God. Those people are one and the same. On the chest of the high priest, on the the breastplate, he had embedded with 12 stones, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. He wore the names of his people upon his chest as he went to make atonement and intercession because they were near and dear to his heart. The people for whom he would pray a a prayer of intercession were the people for whom he would make atonement. And that's what we mean by coextensive. And what do we see when we move from the murky shadow of the old covenant into the new covenant? That those shadows, they reach their apex in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that is what the preacher in Hebrews wants you to understand. It's because of his chief concern that you understand the superiority of Jesus Christ, that he kind of turns his attention to showing how Jesus is greater than the entire sacrificial system. He's greater than the sons of Levi. And that begins in Hebrews 4.14, our text today, and it goes all the way through chapter 10. To show that Jesus is the final great and ultimate priest. Remember, the author has a, a mixed audience. Those who are being tempted to return to the trappings of Judaism because of religious persecution. But he wants his audience to know that that dispensation is obsolete. What was conceived in the old covenant has been birthed in the new. And get this, with the fulfillment of the old covenant, it is no longer a viable way to God. And we saw in our sort of excursus through Leviticus 16, we saw the necessity for a high priest how he was the only one able to go into the Holy of Holies, the only one able to perform the sacrifices on the day of atonement, to sprinkle the lifeblood on the mercy seat. And if that isn't done, then no one in Israel could have any confidence that their sin problem was taken care of. Without a high priest, no sacrifice can be offered. And after the coming of Jesus, Christians understand you cannot get to God through Judaism or any other religion for that matter, you must come only through Jesus Christ. This is the exclusivity of Jesus as he fulfills the old covenant and now is the head of the new. Now this isn't said in a vacuum. So if we begin in our text, remember we just spent a lengthy kind of expose on the dangers of falling short of failing to examine yourself through the instrumentality of the word, the danger that your eternal soul may one day fill the wasteland of eternity in the same way that the bodies of the disobedient Israelites littered the wilderness. He terrifies us with that right before this text and then comes our text. Martin Luther said, after terrifying us, the apostle now comforts us. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, let me read our text. So he says, he begins, therefore, So therefore, in light of the fact that all these professing believers died in the wilderness and never entered into God's eternal rest, therefore, in light of that, the preacher says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, 
yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Some of you may have been spiritually encouraged or challenged by the previous few chapters of the book of Hebrews that the author has stressed the necessity of perseverance that maybe you've kind of felt a little hopeless, helpless, maybe thirsty. Much like the Jews were thirsty while wandering in the wilderness, which ended in disaster. And he was saying, learn from that disaster. Enduring faith, what does it do? What does it do? How do you get to the eternal rest? Perseverance. That's the hallmark of enduring faith. But check this. It's not by your own tenacity or grit. It's not through your own willpower, efforts, or strength. Endurance for the Christian, Christian perseverance is dependence. In the race of the Christian life, you aren't running on your own efforts. No, you have a high priest who in his great condescension entered into this world as a man. And by his human experiences, he has entered into our dilemma so that he is the source of the Christian, the mode of our perseverance. Perseverance isn't something that only a few select Christians possess, like pastors, elders, or deacons. No, it's because we have a high priest who faithfully carries us into the presence of God. He fulfills the dual role of the priest once for all in his atonement and through his entire life, even to this very day of intercession. Most Christians struggle. I would say all Christians struggle, but most struggle without availing themselves of their greatest resource. And perhaps this is true of you here this very morning. You right now may have no clue what Jesus is doing this very moment in heaven on your behalf. And because of that, you do not avail yourself of his daily mercies of intercession. That makes your struggles seem all the more impossible, doesn't it? Difficult, unending, maybe a little hopeless. And because of that, you do not avail yourself of his daily mercies. And that is why the author of our text says, let us hold firmly to our confession. Notice the plural pronouns. What does this mean? Let us, our confession. It means that these are fitting things to the believer. This should remind you here today of when you publicly professed faith in Jesus Christ. Don't renounce that now. Don't turn from your necessary resource now. You need this verse for your entire Christian life, not just at the moment of your conversion. When your children are disobedient and you're tempted to retaliate in anger, let us hold fast our confession. When you're at work and you're kind of fed up with the incompetence of your coworkers, Remind yourself, let us hold fast our confession. When your unbelieving family members just kind of keep pushing all the right buttons, let us hold fast our confession. When you don't get what you think you deserve in this life, let us hold fast our confession. And when you're tempted to fall into sin, this is your source of encouragement. Let us hold fast our confession. And what is that confession? that at your father's right hand, there sits a man in glory who is there on your behalf, 
to ensure that you have at your disposal everything necessary for endurance. Avail yourself of him this morning. He is a great high priest. John Owen, commenting on this text, talks about how the Hebrew audience would have heard the term great high priest. And and there's something kind of missed here for a non-Jewish audience because the term for high priest in Hebrew literally means great priest. So saying Jesus is the great high priest to a Jewish audience is like speaking in duplicates. Jesus is the great, great priest. In other words, the greatest priest, greater in excellency and superiority than every priest that ever came before him. We've seen that Jesus is greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. And now we'll see he's greater than the sons of Levi. Every other priest was a dim foreshadowing of the great high priest. But we must ask ourselves, what makes this priest so great? To be the great, great priest, what sets him apart? What puts him above Aaron and Levi? What makes him superior? And our text is established in order to be a source of encouragement to to those who lay hold of these three glorious truths concerning the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. So that'll be kind of our outline, three glorious truths, his accomplishments, his compassion, and his sympathy or sufficiency. So his accomplishments, his compassion, and his sufficiency. So if you've been wandering in the wilderness in search of something to drink, take a drink from this cup this morning. Three crowning truths concerning the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. Drink from this chalice and never thirst again. First, his accomplishments. He has accomplished what all others only prefigured. You see, they only pretended to do what he actually did. You get that? It's like when children try to imitate their father, they put on his shoes and they kind of stumble around. That's what they're doing in comparison to what Jesus actually did. They were pretending, they were playing games compared to what he actually accomplished. Look at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, don't be mistaken. Consider the superior greatness of Jesus here to the earthly priests of the old covenant. I mean, they went into an earthly temple to get access to God. Jesus goes straight to the source. The old priests, one day a year, Yom Kippur, the high priest would take the blood atonement into the Holy of Holies. And, and there were three major steps associated with his entrance into the Holy of Holies. And to skip one step would mean certain death. He would take the blood into the outer court. He would go through another door called the holy place. And finally, he would go through the veil into the Holy of Holies. This was where the presence of God dwelled. This wasn't the kind of place that the high priest would spend much time. You see any mishap would mean imminent death. According to Jewish tradition, there were sewn in the hems of his garments bells and tied around his ankle a rope. The bells were so that the people outside could hear him moving around in there. And if they stopped hearing the bells, they would know that he'd been struck dead by God. And if struck dead by God, the people could drag his corpse outside without entering into the most holy place. So you see, he couldn't really relax being in the very presence of God, he would literally be shaking and sweating and trying not to spill the blood offering. He was likely trembling with anxiety through this whole drama. He dare not dilly-dally in there or, or rest there because this was a serious matter, to stand before the presence of the holy God of heaven. 
There were no chairs there. Nowhere for him to relax in the presence of absolute holiness. No, he had to stand and tremble and he would make quick work of it. He had one task and he would do it and be done. He would sprinkle the blood of atonement on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, symbolically atoning for the sins of the people, including his own. Symbolically, not actually, but symbolically atoning for their sins. And once he was done, he would quickly leave. You see all the trappings of religion there, all the ceremony, all the motions, never once paid for a single sin. They couldn't even pay for the most microscopic of sins. Not a, not a white lie, not a bad attitude, not inconsiderateness, not unholy thoughts, nothing. Their act was just a prefiguring of what Jesus would accomplish. And after he accomplished atonement, raised from the dead, he passed through the heavens into the most holy place, the very throne room of God. And how do we see that his offering, the offering of his own blood on the tree, how do we see it was accepted? Well, because Hebrews 1, 3, it tells us when he got there, he sat down. And why did he sit? Well, for one, holiness is comfortable with holiness. Jesus was intrinsically holy by his very nature and extrinsically holy through his perfect obedience to the law. Jesus is naturally at home in holiness. He didn't sweat in anxiety and shake in the presence of holiness like all the sinful priests before him did. So why did he sit? Secondly, he had accomplished his work. He had done what he set out to do. When the text says he ascended through the heavens, the Greek text uses the perfect tense, which means it is an action in the past that has continuing results into the future. So he has gone through the heavens and he is still there to this very day. He's still there. Turn over to Hebrews 8, 1 to 2, a few chapters later. I'll just have you turn there because it might be six years before we get to that text. <laughs> Hebrews 8, 1 to 2. Now the main point in what has been said is this. So he's still talking about the high priesthood of Christ. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. On the next page, Hebrews 9, 11 to 12, next chapter. But when Christ as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having attained eternal redemption. If you go down to verse 23, it just keeps going. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. Verse 24, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. That's it for us. He did this for us. It's this simple. He accomplished what every priest only anticipated. They were mere copies of the original. He's the authentic. He's the, the real deal. Furthermore, in our text, we see that Jesus poses, uh, possesses a stature 
that qualifies him to be the great high priest. If you go back to Hebrews 4.14, look again at our text. What distinguishes Jesus from all the other earthly priests? Again, back to verse 14. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. There it is. Jesus, the son of God. Those words are chock full of significance. Jesus, the son of God. I mean, I wish we could spend a whole week of Sundays just unpacking that phrase. And this isn't just some literary device or some embellishment. Uh, And they convey what distinguishes Jesus from all other earthly priests. Jesus. The name stresses his true humanity. And then it says the son of God, stressing his true deity, truly God and truly man. And we come to this point, it's important to consider regarding the qualifications of Jesus, you see. For him to be an appropriate and acceptable mediator, he must be an acceptable mediator between both parties who need to be reconciled. And that is why no other priest could be as effective as the very son of God. Because as God, he's one in nature with the father. He can speak to God on equal footing. And as a man, he knows how to represent us in our infirmities. And once again, as the author masterfully expresses, as he has done over and over again throughout the book, he establishes the deity and the humanity of Christ. I mean, this is the mystery of the incarnation, what we call in theology, the hypostatic union, the conjoined natures, divine and human, and the single person of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And the author has masterfully been building to this crescendo, the deity of Christ, Hebrews 1, verse 3. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. Clearly, he's divine. And in his humanity, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death, He might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He took on flesh and blood. These twin truths have already been established, but here they crescendo in the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. His two natures qualify him to be the perfect mediator. He bridges the gulf between a holy God and a weak, frail humanity. And this quality alone sets him apart from all other earthly priests. He is the ultimate priest because he's more qualified in his deity and his humanity than every priest that came before him. You notice the contrast. Our high priest didn't just pass through the curtains of an earthly holy place or the holy of holies that represented a symbolic separation and presence with God. Our high priest passed through the heavens into the immediate presence of God. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying this, Jesus knows how to get you to God. And why are you here today? We are here today because we want to get to God, right? And the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus just didn't symbolically go into a room that represents communion with God. No, he went into the very presence of God in his ascension. I mean, there he is. Here he is now. He knows how to get you there. It reminds me of John 14, 3 a little bit. 
Remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's explaining to them that he's getting ready to leave and they're a little upset. They say to him, Jesus, we don't want you to leave, right? We don't want you to go. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. The place I'm going, you know, and the way I'm going, you know. And in fact, I'm going to prepare a place for you so I can come again and take you to be with me. And remember what happens? One of his disciples goes, wait a second, Jesus. I don't understand any of this. I I don't know where you're going. I don't know how you're getting there. And Jesus just says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, I can get you to God. I can get you home and no one else can get you home. And I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. It's like the author of Hebrews is just kind of piling the truth of John 14 right on top of you. And my friends, how many funerals have you heard that truth spoken at? I mean, right here in this very congregation, I mean, kind of go down the list of how many of our beloved saints have gone home to be with the Lord in heaven. I mean, how many times have you gone to John 14, 3 to remember that it's only Jesus who can get us home? It's only Jesus who can get us to God. And here the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus can get you to God. He can get you home like nobody else can. Now back to our context, this congregation was struggling with the temptation to think that there was something out there better than Jesus. And their specific temptation is kind of different than yours and mine, but it's also the same, right? In this world and in our own hearts, we're constantly tempted to think that there's something better than Jesus, that we can live a fuller life apart from Jesus, that there's ultimate satisfaction that's better than Jesus, And so we really need the reminder that the author of Hebrews is giving us here today. Second, let's look at his compassion, his compassion. He's perfectly compassionate because he has endured the full force of temptation. And you'll notice in our text, this is expressed twice in verse 15, once in the negative and then again right away in the positive. Uh, Verse 15, it says this, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And this should answer any lingering questions that you have regarding the sympathy of Jesus Christ, right? You may think, well, now that he's in heaven, now that he's at home, sitting at the right hand of his, of his father in his rightful place, is he altogether done with our plight? Can he still understand our dilemma, our infirmities, our physical and emotional weaknesses? Now that he's entered into heaven, Has he forgotten us? I mean, we feel that way sometimes, don't we? When the world shakes us to the core of our faith, tests us beyond what we think are our limits, we wonder, does Jesus remember me? Well, I have an encouragement for you. From our text, we learn our man is in the heavens and he is capable of unparalleled understanding and sympathy. And why is that the case? Because of his own experience as a man. Because he was a man, he has sympathy and compassion beyond compare. Now, one mistake people often make at this point with this text is they assume that because Jesus had a human nature, he had the ability to sin. But let me tell you this day, beloved, there is nothing in unfallen perfect humanity that necessitates the ability to sin. 
I mean, that's the hope that we have as believers, right? There's coming a day when we will be glorified and we will no longer be enticed on the outside or the inside to fall into sin, the sin of our own hearts. I mean, consider for a moment when you are glorified, one of the promises of the Bible is that you will no longer sin, yet you will be just as much human as you are here today. On the flip side, some some people wrongly suppose that Jesus never experienced trials in the same way we do. They think of him like Superman, you know, testing comes and just kind of bounces off of him unfazed, unmoved in any way. But that's not Christianity, beloved. That's Gnosticism. Jesus was truly man. He didn't just appear as a man. He was just as human as you are sitting here this very morning. He was a real man. He had flesh and blood. He was hungry tired. He had a real human mind, real human emotions. And he also had all the inherent limitations and weaknesses every human has ever had, apart from one thing, sin. Yes, he was fully divine. And when he took on human flesh, he didn't surrender any of his deity. No, no, not at all. He remained truly divine. Yet, for example, the eternal God in human flesh as a man, he had to learn. He had to learn. He had to learn how to eat. He had to learn how to talk, how to walk, how to read. He had to learn all the appropriate customs of his day. He had to learn the law of God as a man, how to put on clothes, what he could eat, what he couldn't eat. He had to learn everything humans have to learn. He experienced everything humans experience except sin. Christ's humanity is just like yours, apart from any sin. And he took that humanity to heaven. And so he can resonate and sympathize with us in all our weaknesses. And he sympathizes with us because he was the object of every kind of testing. Now, not every temptation or internal struggle, but every kind of testing. Every Christian agrees Jesus never sinned. I mean, the uniform testimony of the entire Christian church was that Jesus was sinless. He never sinned. Our text says he was without sin, Hebrews 4.15. He was holy, blameless, unstained, separate from sin, Hebrews 7.26. He was without blemish, Hebrews 9.14. He committed no sin, 1 Peter 2.22. In him there is no sin, 1 John 3.5. He knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. No one can convict him of sin, John 8, 46. He always does what is pleasing to the Father, John 8, 29. So whatever temptation means in our text, it, it does not mean he sinned. And yet the confusion people have is that we assume that if Jesus is sympathetic, he had to have identical temptations to ours. And, and that means he had to have the ability to sin and, and at least experience that kind of internal struggle, right? That's what we assume. Not that he actually sinned, but he at least had to have the ability to or experience that struggle. And I want to demonstrate to you why both of those assumptions are utterly false. And worse than false, they're impugning the very character of the holy God. First, sympathy does not necessitate an ability to sin. Our text uses the term sympathy. And the author gives this to us as believers for our comfort in the midst of these struggles that we experience in life. It doesn't mean internal temptation, nor does it imply the possibility or ability to sin. The root word means to have fellow feelings for someone. It denotes sympathetic understanding of situations in regard to similar feelings because of a like-affected state. 
It is an intellectual understanding or more accurately, again, a fellow feeling which derives from full acquaintance with the seriousness of our situation. The text is not saying that Christ's temptation is identical to our own, only similar to it. The author of Hebrews then is saying that Christ's sympathy is a clear understanding of our situations, not a share in all of our affirmities in sin. Christ therefore understands intellectually how fallen creatures are easily susceptible to turning external temptations or trials into sinful indwelling battles. This, however, does not mean that he experienced those sinful indwelling battles himself. Now, the word tempted is is a very important concept to understand. Oftentimes when thinking of temptations, men have a tendency to kind of import into that word their own personal experiences, um, something that's not necessarily meant by it. The word does not necessitate an actual ability to sin, nor does it even mean internal struggle. A temptation or trial is nothing more than an external solicitation to do something. It can be good or evil in the Greek New Testament. And that is why sometimes it's helpful in our English language to distinguish those words with trial sometimes for an external solicitation to evil and use temptation as an internal struggle against sin. And sometimes that's how we distinguish it in English. So reading more into these words does not capture what was intended by the author. It's the same word in Greek. And therefore, it doesn't help us to understand the actual person of Christ, but imposes on him something that only fallen men experience. Hebrews is clearly making the statement that in all manners, Christ experienced the external solicitations and promptings to sin, just like all men. He was not given special treatment by the father to avoid situations to be disobedient. Rather, he was put into the furnace and drawn by the Holy Spirit into those very situations as he was prompted externally by the devil in the wilderness. However, What makes Jesus' trials unlike those of sinful men are that he was without sin. This is the one difference between Christ's testing and those of the rest of fallen humanity. Speaking of fallen men and our struggles with sin, John Owen said this, he said, fallen men are tempted to sin by sin, to actual sin by habitual sin, to onward sin by indwelling sin. This is the greatest spring and source of temptations for us who are sinners is our own indwelling sin. He's expressing that our internal solicitations are sin before they ever rear their ugly heads or manifest themselves externally. Now, maybe I haven't convinced you regarding the difference between an external test and an internal temptation you know, that is sin itself, but let's look at a few cross-references to help us. Uh, James 1 13 to 14. James 1, 13 to 14 is very helpful. It's the next book's over. Uh, it's of great importance to theology, the doctrine of God in general. However, it also lends a great insight into the impeccability of Christ. He reads this, James 1, 13 to 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil And he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by the lusts of his own heart. The reason why this text is so important is because James makes some fundamental distinctions about trials that are external and internal temptations from indwelling sin. 
It is in this text that James shows he is deeply theological and he he vocalizes some profound and vastly important attributes about the doctrine of God. And in doing so, actually, James makes a statement about the very nature of God that you cannot find anywhere else in the Bible, namely that he cannot be tempted to do evil and he himself tempts no one. Only place. The same word for temptation used in James is the same word that's used for temptation in Hebrews 4.15. It is the context which really qualifies what kind of temptation James is discussing. And it sheds a lot of light onto the character of the God-man Jesus Christ, but also the nature of his inability to sin and where temptation really comes from. James claims that it is the desire of our own sinful lusts which produce these temptations to evil, similar to what Jesus said on the matter in Matthew 15, 19. Matthew 15, 19 says, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. It's that internal sin which entices us to sin. This is something that Jesus never experienced. He never had to fight the internal conflict. Hebrews says Jesus was tempted in all the arenas, yet without sin. James claims that temptation, actual sin, the internal lusts of our heart, Jesus says it comes from where? Where does James say it comes from? It comes from the inside. So whatever temptation means in Hebrews, it cannot mean sin, because that's what Hebrews says. And we know that sin comes from the internal struggle. So then Jesus did not have that sinful internal struggle. You see, it's not just sin when you act on it. It's just as much damnable sin when it's incubating in your heart, in your mind, in your struggle. Sin begins in the heart. So what's the point of all that? Christ's humanity was just like yours. And so he understands and can make intercession for you. But remember, it's important to not import your sinful life experiences back onto the Holy Christ. He faced every kind of external trial, but never the inward temptation. He was never tempted to too much laziness or or indulging himself in entertainment. Not because those things were like less accessible to him, even though they might be because most of you have a computer in your pocket right now. But he wasn't tempted to to laziness. He wasn't tempted. He didn't have all the the same experiences of temptation that every single person experiences, right? He doesn't have the temptations unique to married people because he wasn't married. He never had the temptations that come with elderly age, with the aches and pains of life because he died at 33. He never had the temptations unique to parenthood because he didn't have any kids. I mean, there are many temptations that he did not experience. So when the text says he was tempted in all things, it means in all arenas common to the weakness of frail man, not in every temptation possible. He, however, would have had external solicitations to everything like us, to pride, selfishness, greed, doubt, fear, disobeying the father, as you saw when the the devil tempted him in the wilderness. But what distinguishes him from all other priests and every other human is that he never yielded to external temptations because he had no indwelling sin or struggle to overcome in order to do so. The incarnation, the miraculous conception of Jesus in the womb of a virgin exemplifies how he was exempt from the headship of Adam in original sin. So he didn't inherit original sin like we do. Sin has nothing in him internally. That's John 14, 30. 
So he experienced testing to a greater degree or a greater extent than anyone else before him because he never gave in. And Christians are often confused at this very point regarding the impeccability of Jesus. You know, they conclude in their mind that, well, if he couldn't sin, then either he wasn't human or he doesn't understand me. Or that his testings were maybe less powerful than ours because we fall all the time and, and he never did. But quite the contrary, his test was much more than any of ours. The sinlessness of Jesus in the face of testing reveals that he experienced the greatest possible intensity of temptation's power. And we know that because the only way to experience all there is to experience in regard to temptation is to never give in to it. You, beloved, have never experienced the full weight of temptation because you've given into it in the inside before you ever see it on the outside. Throughout the entirety of his life, he had the personal assaults of Satan and his minions trying to allure him away from the father's plan. He didn't struggle with mere internal sins like we do, like you or I, no, right? But he had a personal enemy whose whole goal in life was to wreck the world of the son of man. In the wilderness, he was tempted by Satan. Matthew 4, verse 9 it says, if you fall down and worship me, I will give you the kingdoms of the world. I mean, even his own friends were instruments of Satan. Matthew 16, 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer these things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. And he must be killed and raised again on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. He was betrayed by the traitor Judas and even tested in the mocking of the crowds as he hung on the tree for the sins of his people. I mean, they said to him in Mark 15, verse 30, if you're the son of God, save yourself and come down from the tree. Is that not the greatest test of them all? testing him at the last possible moment to come down from the tree, to, to abandon the obedience that he had done through his entire life. I mean, for years he was tested over and over again to the full. And yet not once did he give himself to it, not in his heart, not in his thoughts, not in his deeds. He never in the slightest gave an inch to sin's testings. And he may be thinking, well, wait a second, in verse 14, you told me Jesus is God. And now in verse 15, you're telling me that he doesn't have any sin. And at the same time, you're trying to tell me he understands me. Help me here. God in the flesh, completely without sin. He understands my weakness, my temptations. He sympathizes with me, even though he doesn't experience internal sin like I do. Yes, he does. So just sit back and kind of take that in. Your God knows what it's like to live in your bones. He knows what it's like. He knows your weaknesses experientially because he took on your very nature. It's mind boggling that this can be said, but what an incredible help. The one to whom you are crying to in your time of need during your struggles of temptation actually understands you. He understands your weaknesses. The temptations were real and powerful. The intensity of temptations in the life of Christ was far greater than any other temptation before him or after him. 
the agony of his obedience was squeezed out through the vice grip of testing and suffering. And that is why we have a sympathetic friend in heaven who is perfectly compassionate because he has endured the full force of temptation's power. The author of Hebrews is saying, the one who is interceding for you, he gets you. He knows what it's like to live inside your weakness. He knows what it's like to inhabit your flesh. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He understands you. You know, you're kind of looking for that person your whole life, you know, who gets you, right? And even though they get you, they still like you. I mean, you're looking for that person, right? The author of Hebrews is saying, the one who ever lives to intercede for you, the one to whom you lift up your prayers and you cry in anguish to when you're in, in trials, he gets you. And he knows what it's like to be you. And he loves you with an everlasting love. My friends, you need that. You desperately, desperately need that. And the author of Hebrews is saying, nobody but Jesus can give that to you. Nobody but the sinless son of God can give that to you. The final fact I want to give you this morning is that he supplies his people with whatever is necessary and sufficient to persevere in the Christian life. Remember the context. This example was, has everything to do with encouragement for our perseverance. Look at verse 16. Not only does he get you, right? But he knows how to give you what you need in the time that you need it. Look at how the author says it. He says, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in the time of need. And all of this is designed to lead to two things, this whole passage we've looked at. Notice that in each of the three verses, we've seen that there's one thing that Jesus does that you desperately need and then kind of cocooned inside are two things that are our response. Verse 14, let us hold fast our confession because we have a great high priest because he sympathizes with us and let us hold fast. And the second thing, verse 16, what do we see? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. What's he saying? He's saying, pray. Depend on Christ. Believe that your prayers are heard. You know, dependence and waiting are underrated aspects of the Christian life. We like to talk about the great exploits of the faith by great heroes of, of past. Well, here's a great exploit of the faith. Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and he heard my cries. I mean, that's, that's the great exploit of faith. Spurgeon once said, we shall not grow weary of waiting upon God if we remember how long and graciously he once waited upon us. Waiting for the Lord is hard. And the author of Hebrews is saying that your high priest understands what it's like to live in your skin. He knows exactly what you need, how to give it to you and when you need it. When you're struggling with temptation, go to him, pray, Come to him with confidence. I mean, the world's not helping you to do those things, to, to believe those things, but your savior is, and you desperately need what he does for you right now in intercession. The perfect sacrifice of Jesus tore the veil, symbolizing our separation from God. And now we have access, immediate access into the presence of God. Now we have access to the throne of grace. And our text gives us two things that we also need. 
mercy, and grace to help in the time of need. Beloved, if you've been running the race in the Christian life for any period of time, you know, one thing is inevitable as long as you're on this earth unglorified. You're going to fall. You will fall. At some point you will fall. And sometimes miserably. I'm not going to lie to you this morning and give you some cheap superficial version of the Christian life. When you set out on this race, you're going to fall. But know this. When you do fall and come to the Father in brokenness, you will find mercy and not condemnation. And you want to know why? Because at his right hand is our high priest, submitting the evidence of his redemptive accomplishment achieved in his living and in his dying. 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see, for the task of perseverance, if you're going to make it through the wilderness of life on your Christian pilgrimage to eternal rest so that you don't fall by the hardness of heart, the deceitfulness of sin and disobedience in the wilderness like the Israelites did, if you're going to succeed, you need mercy for the times you fail and you need grace to be given for strength and endurance. Mercy for your failures and grace for strength to endure. It's all there. It's the complete package that our great, great priest has for us. And you want to know how accessible it is to you this very moment, this very morning, how readily available it is? By comparison, under the old covenant, the the high priest could only enter the Holy of Holies one time a year. If you wanted mercy, you had to wait an entire year to get it. And he was only in there a few minutes. But what does our text say? Go back to verse 16. Let us draw near with confidence. The phrase, let us draw near, it's in the present tense. Let us continually, ever presently draw near. Not one time a year, not only when you've done something seriously egregious or sinful. No, not not once a week, not once on Sunday mornings or twice if you happen to go to a Bible study in the week. No, every single day. As long as the day is called today, the ever ongoing present, let us draw near. Let us go to the throne of grace. Let us keep coming there for the nourishment that we need. Don't stop coming to the throne for mercy. Don't stop coming to the throne for grace. You never need to fear that you will wear out your welcome on your knees before the high king of heaven. And this is how a Christian perseveres. This is where we find the mercy for our failures in regularly coming for the throne of grace for endurance in the midst of our struggles for obedience. And you know, he'll grant it to you because our high priest is ever present pleading on your behalf. Now you want to know why you don't always do this on the regular? You want to know why there are so many lapses in your spiritual life? Why there are more lows than highs in your spiritual walk and growth and immaturity? Because deep down, you don't believe it'll work. When you fall in your sin, You don't need a list of 20 things to do. You need the throne of grace. And how do you get it? Through prayer and supplication to the Father, through the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And if you aren't satisfied with that, beloved, you've never experienced it. And you're truly in danger of dying in the spiritual wilderness. Everything else is a cheap counterfeit. 
So you have to ask yourself right here and right now, is Jesus Christ your high priest? You need a high priest, but if your priest is anyone other than this priest, I promise you, you'll die in your sins. For no other priest can bridge the gap and get you home to heaven. No one else, no one but Jesus Christ. All their attempts will prove to be miserable and inadequate. Now, one quick illustration to show this to you, how Jesus properly kind of furnishes for you the grace that you need for your life, how he supplies you through his intercessory work. Let me, let's look at this. Acts chapter 7, turn there. Acts 7, verse 54 to 56. It's kind of one of my favorite scenes in the Bible, Acts 7, 54 to 56. Stephen is giving his life for this Jesus. He's ready to die for his high priest. He's giving his life for him and, and he's surrounded by people who think they're doing God a favor by killing him and he's all alone. Great illustration, Acts 7, 54 to 56. The text says in verse 54, uh, now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. They were ready to snuff out his life, right? And he looks up and there is the scene of Jesus in his heavenly session. Verse 55 to 56, it reads, that being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man is standing at the right hand of God. What's interesting about that text from what we've seen so far, even in the book of Hebrews is that, you know what? Jesus isn't sitting, he's standing. In Hebrews 1, 3, it says Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. We saw numerous texts about that. So in Hebrews, it says Jesus sits. And in Acts 7, Stephen looks up and he sees Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. What's that all about? Well, the two texts are talking about two unique roles that Jesus fulfills. In Hebrews 1, 3, he sits because his work is complete as, as atonement is made. It's complete. It's finished. It's accepted by the Father. Debt paid, atonement made, mission accomplished, one-time work, it's done. So he sits. And yet in Acts, you see he stands to make intercession. So he sits demonstrating his finished work in atonement and he stands to show his ongoing work of intercession, even to this day. You may be wondering why, and it's really a fitting illustration this is the major posture in the Bible for prayer. Standing with arms outstretched to God. That's what Jesus is doing here on behalf of his suffering saint. Remember when Moses in, in Exodus 17 is interceding for the people and as they fight for their enemies, he's standing with his arms outstretched, interceding for them. Solomon in 1 Kings 8 stood before the altar and he prayed to God and he did it with outstretched hands, supplicating the Father. And there's Stephen as he's about ready to die, struggling and, and being tested, looks up to see his savior who's interceding for him and gives his life for him. I mean, Jesus stands praying for Stephen. Father, give him grace to endure to the finish. Let him finish well. Let him die strong. Give him grace. As you go through life's trials, you need someone who is so deeply invested in you, so deeply moved with sympathy that they stand with arms outstretched to the Father to plead for more grace for you to endure strong. 
And that's the picture of Jesus' sympathy, standing for you to make intercession. You need Jesus to intercede for you, and he ever lives to intercede. That's what Jesus is doing, and that should comfort your trying heart. I want to close with this. Uh, I'll read four stanzas from a hymn by Joseph Hart. A man there is, is the name of the hymn. A man there is, a real man, with wounds still gaping wide, from which rich streams of blood once ran in hands and feet and side. Tis no wild fancy of our brains, no metaphor we speak. The same dear man in heaven now reigns that suffered for our sake. This wondrous man of whom we tell is true almighty God. He bought our souls from death and hell, the price, his own heart's blood. That human heart he still retains, though throned in heavenly bliss. And he feels each tempted member's pains for our afflictions are his. Let's pray. Our heavenly father, we do not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from your mouth. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. You speak no failing words. Your words are truth. Lord, sanctify us by them. We know in this book, there is a message that would solve every problem of, that the human race has ever faced. Lord, we are ignorant, so we need Christ as our prophet. Lord, we are rebellious, so we need him as our king. And Lord, we are oh so guilty so we need him as our great high priest. Lord, we find nothing in Christ that we do not need, and we take it all as our own. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.